I thought of uh, the many ways we could start this morning, and um, generally they tell you to grab your audience's attention with a joke or with something happy, but I would like to start with something heavy, um, because I think that it is good for um, pleasure-seeking happy Americans to every once in a while um, think about what is happening to our brothers and sisters overseas, and then to think about what's happening right here in our comfy air-conditioning um, room with our comfy seats. So listen to this. On the Sunday morning, Boko Haram militants attacked the town of Michika in northeastern Nigeria. Pastor Joel Billy gathered the children of his congregation to the front of the church. Fears were thick as rumors swirled that the jihadists might arrive any day. Some townspeople had fled, but others stayed, realizing they had few options to find safe haven in the rugged terrain nearby. On a Sunday morning last September, hundreds of Christians gathered for worship at Billy's Church, a congregation of the Church of the Brethren in Nigeria. The pastor walked down the platform steps, laid his hands on the children's heads, and delivered this harrowing message to the children. It is the plan of Boko Haram to come and drive us from our homes and from our churches. If they do come here, never deny Jesus. If they kill your parents, never deny Jesus. If they take you away to the Sambisa forest, never deny Jesus. The pastor then returned to the pulpit, preached a sermon, gave a benediction, and went to the vestry to pray with the church's elders. Billy says a church member arrived at the door with frightful news they are coming. The pastor heard gunshots and urged his congregation to leave the church quickly. Large gatherings of Christians are prime targets for Boko Haram, and one, for the, one of the reasons the militants often attack on Sundays. Most members carried only their Bibles, and some used hymn books as shields against flying bullets. Some were shot, including an associate pastor. At least 40 church members died in the onslaught. The pastor says the rest scampered into the surrounding wilderness as militants advanced. We fled from the altar to the bush. This is in um, World Magazine uh, recently, and there are just horrific pictures of destruction. Um, and you think of a Sunday morning like that, it's hard to even imagine um, what that would be like. Would we still gather if we knew people were coming? <laughs> um, why would we still gather if we did, if people were still coming? After um, this happened five months later, uh, the army of Nigeria retook the town and some people moved back in. Um, the World Magazine writer uh, went to one of the hospitals to interview some of these people. Um, there was an eight-year-old boy limping painfully as he recovered from injuries sustained from a landmine he picked up while gathering firewood. The explosion ripped off his right arm and badly burned his leg. Others had gunshot wounds and machete blows. In one room, 34-year-old Micah recounted militants ambushing his village and demanding he convert from Christianity to Islam. Micah's response, God forbid... So the militants fatally shot his wife and butchered Micah with a machete. He survives with a missing right arm, a badly damaged left arm, and five motherless children. When I asked how Christians could pray for him, his immediate reply, pray that I will stand fast. It's a prayer uttered by other Christians shot, maimed, and bereaved by Boko Haram in recent years. A 34-year-old Christian woman I met lost her husband and two young sons to a militant attack and survived a severe machete wound to her arm and throat. The young widow now cares for her surviving 11-year-old son, a quiet, sweet boy who sits close to his mother's side. In a voice weakened by her injury, she asked for prayers to raise her son in God's way, but still sensing her greatest need. She also asked, pray that I will hold on to Christ with both hands. So, how dare we come this morning um, to pick and choose what we want to hear, to consume what we want to consume, to throw out what we want to throw out, to think that we are owed this kind of safety. Um, may we pray to the Lord now to refocus our minds on His Word, the same Word that people are being killed for all around the world. Father, this morning, um, it's okay that our hearts are heavy after hearing this. Um, we are not immune from sorrow and sadness ourselves, but we know very little 
of this terror. And so, Lord, for us meeting together for the express purpose of hearing from you, from your word, to sing praises to you with a sound system on a main street in a heavily populated area and to feel no fear. God, help us to understand that blessing. And Lord, let us not waste it. So this morning, as we consider who you are, may we remember um, that, that this is true no matter what our situation is. That you are who you are because you're God. And that does not change regardless of our situations. God, lead us and guide us this morning. We want to hear from you. Lord, as we sang this morning, um, holiness is what we long for. So Lord, if that's really true, would you help us to demonstrate that? Would you keep us um, alert and awake? Would you uh, help us to be alert to your Holy Spirit working in our lives? And for those this morning in this room who do not know you, may they be uh, may they have their conscience pricked. May they um, feel the weight of their sin and look to the one who has salvation in his hands to offer. God, guide us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 17, please. Exodus 17, as we continue in our series on the names of God, we've got a long way to go, dozens more names to come. Um, this morning, we're going to try to get through three but if you've been gone, it's, it's summer. If you're a visitor um, or if you um, just weren't paying attention <laughs> or perhaps forgot what happened a few weeks ago, uh, I just want to briefly go back through the names that we've covered so far. Um, so we've covered uh, the names Elohim and Theos, the Old Testament and New Testament words for God, the Creator. We've covered Adonai, Lord, um, which is Master, Sovereign. The New Testament word is Kurios often used of Jesus. We've talked about Yahweh, the personal covenant name of the God of Israel. We've talked about how when we look in our Bibles and we see um, Lord in all caps, that we're seeing the word Yahweh. When we see the word Lord spelled normally, we're seeing Adonai in the Old Testament. It's good for us to remember. Uh, we've covered El Elyon, God Most High. We covered um, El Roe, God Who Sees. El Shaddai, God Almighty, Yahweh Shaphat, Yahweh is judge, El Olam, everlasting God, the Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and the end. We talked about Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide, Yahweh will provide, Yahweh Rophe, is where we left off last week, the Lord who heals, Yahweh who heals. And in all of these names, we're discovering more and more about God and what Pastor Ron has done as close as possible, is kind of moved us um, through the, the order of Scripture as more and more is revealed about God. You think about what Noah knew about God. And then you think about what more was revealed to Abraham. And that Isaac was able to hear the stories that his dad told him. And as God revealed himself in different ways and with different names and in different places, I mean, he further revealed himself that his people knew more and more about him. And so we are extremely blessed to know so much about God. And this morning I want to cover three more names uh, that help us see who God is. So uh, you are in Exodus 17, um, and we have uh, been in the book of Exodus covering some of the names of God. And at this point in the story, if you'll remember, if you're familiar with the Bible story, the, the Israelites have been led out of the, the exodus from Egypt. Um, they're now in the wilderness. God led them through um, the Red Sea and destroyed the pursuing Egyptian army. Not long after that, the people began to grumble um, about food. And so Yahweh provides manna. Every morning they get up and there's food on the ground everywhere. Um, uh, Yahweh provides for them meat in the wilderness for this new um, nation. He provides water, he provides food, he provides salvation. Um, and now in this story, we're going to see that he provides protection um, by uh, their army. Okay, so look at verse 8 of Exodus 17. We're just going to read this little section and begin to look at the name of 
um, that God reveals to his people, okay? Exodus 17, 8. Why don't you follow along with me? By the way, if you don't have a Bible, it would be really helpful if you had one. So there's uh, black ones in the seat backs in front of you, um, or if you have your app open, there's uh, all kinds of possibilities to follow along. Exodus 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord, or Yahweh, is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of Yahweh. Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. We need to, um, to get a little bit of background here to understand what's going on. Um, the Amalekites will crop up again several times more in the biblical story, uh, but they've already been introduced to us as um, the man Amalek who started the tribe, and he is a grandson of Esau. So Amalek is a direct descendant of Isaac. So what you have with the Amalekites and the Israelites are basically cousins, cousin tribes. Uh, the Amalekites were a nomadic tribe that lived, um, that, that moved around from the southern portion of Canaan, what is now Israel, down into the Sinai, and over into what is now Jordan and possibly Saudi Arabia, moving from place to place with their herds. The book of Deuteronomy gives us a little bit more um, insight into this. In Deuteronomy twenty-five eighteen, Moses recounts this attack um, by the Amalekites. And basically, it sa- sounds like the Amalekites attacked the rear of the Israelite um, uh, people. So they attacked who would be at the, en- at the end of the line. It would be the elderly, the children, those who are not as fit, not in as good a shape. And so they are terrorists. They are taking advantage of the weak to inspire terror in the children of Israel. And so Moses um, says to Joshua, by the way, this is the first time we see Joshua in the biblical story, it's time to fight. Now think about who these people are. Um, Weeks ago in the storyline, they were slaves. And not only that, but their their parents had been slaves, and their grandparents had been slaves, and their great-great-grandparents. Okay, so all they knew was slavery, subjugation to um, a world, the world power at the time. Um, You don't go from that into a well-functioning nation or army like that. Um, So this is a a very um, incredible threat to the the children of Israel. And Moses um, does not take any chances. And he takes, if you'll notice in verse 9, a very important... Um, weapon, a very important uh, symbol, and that is the staff of Elohim. Um, It is the staff that he's had since Yahweh showed up in a burning bush and said, throw it on the ground. Remember that? Moses throws it on the ground, Ah! and it turns into a snake, okay? And I love that part of the story because it says Moses runs away. (laughs) He throws his staff on the ground, it turns into a snake, and he's gone. Um, God has to convince him to come back, pick it up, and it turns back into a staff. With that staff, he touches the water, it turns to blood. With that staff, he shows up in front of Pharaoh time after time after time, and the plagues descend on Egypt. When Moses stands in front of the Red Sea, God tells him to hold up the staff. Um, When uh, Moses gives them water, he uses the staff. And so the staff has come to symbolize the power of God through their leader, Moses. And so as the children of Israel fight, um, on a high hill overlooking the plain, there they can pick out Moses. What's he holding? The staff of Elohim, the creator God. He's holding the staff that symbolizes the power of God. And so the name that we have um, seems a little bit weird to uh, English-speaking ears because in the ESV it says in verse 15, they named the altar 
And so we're going to take um, the fact that they named the altar this, the fact that they're also naming or calling God this as well. Yahweh is my banner. Um, when we think of banners, I think of banners. I think of like paper or cloth over something. Um, we, in fact, we have one that we use for announcements. Sometimes big sign-ups out in the gym. We have a banner um, over things. That, that's not what this is. <laughs> um, we, I looked up this word, and it's more like a signal pole or a flag staff. Um, it, it was probably made of metal or wood. Um, it was meant to be a symbol of the army, um, which would usually be a symbol of the god or gods of that army. Um, our flags aren't here. Where are our flags? I was going to point to the top of our flags. Top of an, an American flag generally has like an eagle on the top of it, right? I think our Christian flag has a cross or something. Um, it's at the top. It's, 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 a, it's a signal pole. It's a, it's a standard um, it is a, a symbolic way of pointing out this is where we march, this is who we march under. In Scripture, the same word is used for the 12 tribes later on when they're in the wilderness and they build the tabernacle. You remember this? And they, they camp three tribes on each side of the tabernacle. Well, you figure with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people and they're all getting their manna and they're all going out and using the restroom and they're all doing sacrifices and living life and doing all this stuff that they might get lost, get confused when it's time to move and the cloud comes up over the tabernacle and they leave. How are they supposed to be organized? Well, they had a standard. They had a, a, a flag staff. They had a banner. Um, and they would look to that so that they know where to go. Um, I have a few examples. Here are uh, just some uh, drawings, reconstructions of things that we found archaeologically um, from various uh, cultures in the Middle East. This is um, from Assyria. And um, so you have, I don't know if those are donkeys or unicorns. It didn't say, but they look like unicorns. So that's kind of cool. Um, and then you have the king who also may be the god who's fighting for them with his bow. Um, as well as some gruesome looking figures down in this area. This would have been held aloft. Maybe you think of a movie like Gladiator, or you think of something that depicted the Roman legion. They would have the pole with the Roman eagle at the top, sometimes very large, in fact, to indicate um, this is Rome, don't mess with us. This is Rome, rally to the flagstaff. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about banner. So in your mind, get out that picture uh, of the, the cloth or paper banner over the top of something. This is not um, what we're talking about. In fact, um, the banner here is very much like the staff that Moses is holding. Um, and so I think that what's meant here is that when they're to look during the battle, and they look up and there's Moses on top of the hill and he's holding up the staff. I don't know if he held it like this or if he held it like this or however he held it, but there was the staff. And when they saw that, they would say, our God has provided, our God has healed, our God has saved us, and our God's fighting for us. And then they clearly saw it because at the beginning of the battle, it seems that Moses got a little tired and then all of a sudden things started going badly and he had to get his arms back up for them to, to be winning. Um, the point of this is that God is the one who is fighting for his people. It symbolizes the presence of Yahweh, their covenant God, with them in their battles, in their fighting. And we also have something very interesting and, and kind of confusing, and so I want to try to walk us through this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, so if, if, I'm, if I'm not clear and you have questions, please come talk to me afterwards. But look at verse 15, please. Look at verse 15. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, Yahweh is my banner. Okay, Yahweh Nisi. That's the name here, Yahweh Nisi. Saying, a hand upon the throne of Yahweh. Now, if you have an ESV, there's a little number by throne. It's superscripted there, and you can go down to the bottom or to the um, inside column of your Bible, and there's a note, and it should say something like, a slight change would yield upon the banner. Um, I'm not sure why the translators of the ESV um, did this, but uh, what very well could be the case is that 
down through the years, although we have an incredibly accurate Bible every once in a while, a scribe kind of messed up and that got passed on. Um, this is the case in the scriptures. That's why you have notes on the bottom. Um, if it might say a variant or a variation or it might say or, um, it's pointing out that there may be, a, a, may be a little bit of a difference in the transmission. God didn't get it wrong in the transmission. Sometimes there have been mistakes. Now, um, a lot of uh, skeptics and atheists and secularists love to point this out and say, see, how can you trust the Bible that it's not accurate? Uh, well, first of all, um, there's a very tiny amount of these compared to the text of the scriptures that we have. And none of them, I repeat, none of them deal with core doctrines of the Christian faith. Let me show you how easy it would have been to mess this up. So, when he's talking about the banner, Yahweh Nisi, it starts with this word. Now, I want you to look at the shapes of the letters. Um, Hebrew goes from right to left, okay, the opposite of how we read in English, left to right. And so, um, it moves this way. This is a noon, this is a samak, that's not the big deal. The point is, do you see how, how similar this letter is to this letter? All it would take was an accidental extension to change the letter from one to another. In fact, you could think of this um, in English very easily. If you don't dot your I very clearly, it could look like an L. Or maybe we don't know, maybe that's a capital I. We're not sure. Um, some people can do a V to make it look like an N, or an N looks like a V. Um, and so I think this is probably what's the case here. So I think that as we're reading this, that he didn't name the altar and didn't call God, Yahweh is my banner, and then have the application be about a throne. And some people have tried to make the case for that, but I think that there was just a slight uh, incorrect uh, passing on by some scribe um, and kind of made the noon look like a cough, and all of a sudden we have a different word. We have the word throne. Um, and I, so I think that as we read verse 16, verse 15 and 16, we should see that the altar is called Yahweh Nisi, Yahweh's my banner, a hand upon the banner of Yahweh. And this makes a lot of sense because it might have to do with Moses holding up the staff with his hands. Hands are a very important um, picture in this story. It also um, has to do with the next phrase that ends our little section, Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation saying that a hand will be on the flagstaff, okay, on the signal, on the standard of Israel for all time as they fight Amalek. So later on in Numbers, um, after the children of Israel reject the spies' report and um, Moses intercedes and God does not destroy them, but then they have a change of heart and they decide, hey, let's go up and take the land. Well, the Amalekites and the Canaanites wipe out a portion of the children of Israel. Uh, later on, when um, the Israelites are in the land in the time of Joshua and Judges, they do battle with the Amalekites again. A famous story is um, King Saul is supposed to wipe out the Amalekites, and he disobeys the Lord's commands, and Samuel comes and rebukes him, and that's why Saul loses his kingdom. David, in, on the run from uh, Saul, fights with the Amalekites again. And the Amalekites continue to crop up here and there in Scripture, um, probably disappearing with the story of Esther and Haman the Agagite, who is descended most likely from the Amalekites. So in this, in this story, we see the introduction of probably the first foe of the children of Israel in the Amalekites. And so this battle narrative, this battle story reminds us Okay, that Yahweh fought for Israel. So an implication and response is not only did he fight for Israel, but we bring that to the present day. Number one, remember that God fights for you. Remember that God fights for you. What kind of armor does Paul want you to put on? Your own armor? The armor of God. Um, in fact, many of those pieces of armor that we're told to put on in the Old Testament are descriptions of God's armor, of God as a warrior fighting for his people. And this is in several places in the Old Testament where um, kings and leaders of Israel would say, don't worry, God will fight for us. Yahweh will fight for us. Um, and so the, the issue would be um, that this banner, that this flagstaff is a military uh, picture, a military symbol of Yahweh fighting 
for the children of Israel and for his people. We see the same word in Psalm 60. Psalm 60, verses 4 and 5. You can write this down and look it up later. Um, It says, You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. In Psalm 60, the plea is, we're being attacked. We need some place to recover, to retreat to, to recoup. Um, Where are we going to do that? Flee to the banner. Flee to the banner. Regroup there. Yahweh is there and he will fight for us. Um, This is very similar to a picture in Revelation 19 when um, Jesus, the one who's called Faithful and True, returns on, on on a horse and he comes back and he fights for his people. He turns back... Uh, the enemy and his armies and fights for his people. In fact, it's not even close. It's a slaughter um, and Jesus wins the battle for his people. And so this, this applies to our life at all times. We know that our lives are lived in warfare. Um, there is spiritual warfare going on right now in this room between forces of evil and the forces of God. Remember that God fights for you. Can you use that this week? Could you use that this week, that God is the one who fights for you? You don't have to do it on your own, which is really good because you're weak. (laughs) So am I. We need to flee to the banner of Yahweh Nisi. Uh, Number two for implications and response. Hey, is Jesus your banner? Is Jesus your banner? There's this picture in the New Testament of, of looking up. And so the banner would have been something tall. It would have been something high so that the warriors could see it. And this picture of Jesus being raised up on a pole, on a tree, on a cross, um, we could say that Jesus is our banner. In fact, in Numbers 21, um, you remember the story of the serpents um, uh, in the camp of Israel? They're biting them, and so um, God gives his people a way of salvation. What is it? It's a bronze serpent that they are to look at. This is just one artist's rendering of what it may have looked like. But this again is a standard. It's a banner. It's a flagpole. It's a flagstaff. And all that the people had to do was to look to the top and be saved. Moses prayed for them and they escaped. And so in John three fourteen, Jesus says, just as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Well, what did the serpent in the wilderness do when it was lifted up? In essence, it it saved them if if they had faith to look. And so here's Jesus predicting his death on a cross... Okay, and, and, and from then on, the symbol of the cross is important in Christian history because on it, Jesus dies for our sins and takes the holy wrath of God upon himself so that we don't have to. And so the picture is of looking at Jesus on the tree, on the pole, dying in our place for our sins. And I would ask you this morning, is Jesus your banner? Is Jesus your banner? Isaiah eleven ten through 12 tells of a day in the future when a Messiah would come. And it says this, Isaiah eleven ten through 12. In that day, future day, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal, as a banner for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, The Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamat, from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal, same word, he will raise a banner for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Do you see the picture there? In the future, not only will Judah and Israel run to the banner, but the nations will come as well. This is a picture of the Messiah to come who we find out in the pages of the New Testament is Jesus Christ. He is our banner. Yahweh Nisi is Jesus Nisi. He is our banner. 
The next name that I want to take us to occurs 17 chapters later in Exodus 34. So if you could turn to Exodus 34, um, we will look at another name of God. A name that is, um, it's difficult for us because of the English translation, but it's also difficult because of the day and age in which we live. This is um, something of God's uh, character that we don't uh, understand as well. In fact, I've heard, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard that this is, um, this is the, the, the name of God, this is the attribute of God that drove Oprah um, from the church, and that is that God is jealous. Um, that's, that's what I've heard. If someone can confirm that later, that'd be great. But we're in Exodus 34, and this is a crucial time in Israelite history. Let me just back up real quick. Um, in the chapters preceding this, um, 25 until 31, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. Um, he is meeting with Yahweh, um, and, and Yahweh is giving him exact dimensions of the tabernacle that is to be built, of the furniture that goes in the tabernacle, of the skins that are to be used, what kind of wood needs to be used, what kind of boards shall we do, what are we going to do? And so that's what's happening before this. Moses concludes his time on Sinai. He leaves with two tablets containing the ten words, the ten commandments. Chapter 32 flashes back to, meanwhile, back at the ranch, um, back in camp, what's going on? Well, the people are getting frustrated. Moses has been gone for a long time. Um, these people are, have been proven to be fickle, um, like you and I are. And um, they, they need something to see. They need to see something. To them, seeing is believing. So Aaron, build us a God. And they're not even, they don't even go so far as to say it's not Yahweh. They just want a visual depiction of Yahweh. Well, they've already received the Ten Commandments. And it said, no graven images. And here they are, weeks later, asking for a graven image. There's a party. There is wicked. Um, they've, they've gone back to the worship that they observed in Egypt and the worship of the nations around them. Moses, of course, comes down the mountain in anger, shatters the Ten Commandments. Um, there is a plague that breaks out amongst the people. Chapter 33, Moses goes into the tent of meeting, the, the pre-tabernacle, pleads for Israel, asks Yahweh not to destroy them, then makes this bold request, I want to see your glory. And in some, in, in an incredible passage of Scripture, God consents to that request. <laughs> Um, in chapter 34, it actually comes true because Moses goes back up the mountain. He brings up two new tablets. God writes on them the Ten Commandments one more time. And then Yahweh appears to Moses. He, he tucks Moses into this, these, these two rocks so that when he shows up, Moses won't be blown apart and knocked off the mountain. He sees the back end of God's glory. The covenant is renewed. Moses comes back down with radiation face. He doesn't even know it. He's got to cover it up because it's too bright for the people to look at. And that brings us to this portion of Scripture. In Exodus 34.10, he says this, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of Yahweh, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God. For Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. By the way, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Just in case you were wondering. The reminder from Yahweh to his people, but he uses this word kana, kana, jealous. It is. It's, he goes so far actually to say his name is jealous, capital J. Um, this is weird to us. Um, I, 
I don't generally train my daughters to be jealous. Um, we use this word in a way that's almost the same as envious, to envy, to want what someone else has. But in the context of Scripture, one author said it's never used um, in a negative way, that it is always a positive thing. I'm not sure by that, but the, the thrust of the word is more zeal, zealous, so that the way that the New Testament authors translated this word is they used a word, zealous, where we get the word zeal or zealous from. Um, this is what they were looking at. So here's some definitions. Um, jealous, envious, can work sometimes, but zealous, ardor, zeal, full of eagerness, um, anger, in the sense of just being so jealous for something that anger um, comes up. Just to maybe help us a little bit between the two differences of jealousy and envy, just two thoughts on this. I think I agree with what these guys say. Um, One guy said, It may prove helpful to think of zeal as the original sense from which derived the notion, zeal for another's property, which is envy, it's just coveting, I want your stuff, and zeal for one's own property, jealousy, rightly guarding my stuff. Um, or, there's another way of looking at it, what's the difference between jealousy and envy? Um, one author said, we often use the words as synonyms. The distinction is significant though. I might be envious of what you have, but I am jealous of you. I might be envious, of, now we might not use it that way, but this is kind of the distinction here. Okay, envious of what you have, but jealous of you. Um, one is of your stuff, one is of you personally. One has to do with possessions, the other of persons. And that makes sense in the biblical way because God's jealousy is always an intense love for his people, his property, the ones that he owns. He is their Lord, their master, their Adonai. And in, in the Bible, this reflects the intensity of God's love. So the way that this is most often used in the Bible and the best way to use this in our culture is to understand my jealousy for my wife. If someone wants to be with my wife, I shouldn't go, oh, all right. If someone whistles at her, if so, right? I mean, I, oh, well, that's a bummer. I wish they wouldn't do that. That's not, what is that? That's not love. That's cowardice. Right? There's this, this intense jealousy that we are to have for our spouses um, that is right and good. Why? Because God made that to be an exclusive union. We're not sharing. So we are to be jealous or zealous for our spouses. And so in the Bible, God's jealousy is always directed against idolatry. And idolatry is equated with adultery, spiritual adultery. So when the people of God went to worship other idols, they were cheating on Yahweh, right? They were committing spiritual adultery by committing the sin of idolatry. So what does it mean that God is jealous? (laughs) It means, it means that God is jealous for a few things. Go back to Exodus 20. We have a whole class on this right now, the Ten Commandments. I think today you are talking about murder. Which number is that, Terry? Six. Six. Six of the Ten Commandments, if you want to get in on that. In uh, Exodus 20, in the way that um, God describes how worship is to be done, he describes himself as jealous once again. Exodus 20, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. That's that's pretty all-encompassing. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. And then his wrath comes out here. So there's two sides of this jealousy. He will punish those who um, rebel against him. But in his jealousy, he's also, look at verse 6, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Skip ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and we'll see another a nuance of how this word is used. God is a jealous God. His name is jealous. So jealousy is one of his attributes. It, it's part of who he is. So you understand that? God doesn't like feel jealous. Like he is jealous. He's zealous for proper worship. He's zealous for his own glory. He's zealous for his name's sake. In chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verse 23, he's 
in the middle of this long, Moses is telling the people, don't worship idols. Here's the reasons why. In 23, take care, lest you forget the covenant of Yahweh your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that Yahweh your God has forbidden you. For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, equal sign, a jealous God. He's a jealous God. Now this does not, the reason we don't understand this is because this doesn't work very often, except for in the marriage relationship and maybe in some other family extensions. But um, th- th- this interesting picture of, of God saying, no, just me. Only me. See, it doesn't work for you and me. No, just me. I'm jealous for me. My name, my glory, it's about me. That doesn't work for you and me. But think about with God. If God doesn't make it all about him, who's it going to be about? Someone else. And that ain't good, right? Now, if the almighty sovereign of the universe is, is all about someone else first and not putting his own glory on display, then, then we have a big, big problem. So um, the jealousy of God is also described like this. Here's another quote that I found helpful. Um, he is to be preeminent in our lives, this jealous God, not just prominent. He's not one of many. He's it. He is preeminent first, alone, not just one of many, not just a prominent one. So God intensely loves his people, which means he will discipline them for their own good. What's best for his people? Him. (laughs) So he wants them to fully enjoy himself. So he's jealous for that. So he's going to do what it takes to remind us. No, you're going off track. You're going off track. You're going off track, right? We get disciplined by a loving father. He's jealous for our spiritual growth. He's jealous for our maturity. He's jealous for our worship. One more, um, a longer quote that I think is really helpful for us to consider here. While jealousy strikes many moderns as a negative emotion, jealousy comprises a fundamental part of the vocabulary of love and often describes God's relationship to Israel. Jealousy describes the intensity of God's love toward his people. It's an adjective. It's it's helping um, describe God's love. God's love is never passive. Rather, the Lord's love burns like a refiner's fire. Good choice, Joshua. Consuming the dross and all impurities, as well as purifying the resulting precious relationship. The Lord's jealousy portrays his protective love for Israel, as well as his desire for faithful worship from his followers. So this God who is jealous is consolidating worship to him alone. Because that is the greatest good for his people. He's jealous for his own glory. We see that um, throughout scripture. In Ezekiel 39, he says he's jealous for his namesake, um, for his name to be lifted high. God is jealous for that to happen. Think about the plagues in Egypt. Yahweh explicitly says, I'm going to bring these plagues on the gods of Egypt. Why? So that everyone will know they're not gods. (laughs) He is, he is demoting them and promoting himself. Showing the Israelites that you are slaves. But look, I love you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to show you in as many ways as possible that I'm the one you need to follow and to worship. So some implications and response. So many. I just decided to leave it short here at two. At two. Um, the first one is, be careful. Don't forget. Be careful, don't forget. Isn't that the story of the Old Testament? If you, if you did a word search on Bible Gateway or if you have some kind of Bible software and just type in forget or forgot and look at all the times the children of Israel forget Yahweh, forgot the covenant, forget the Lord. It happens over and over and over again. Remember in the story of Josiah, the boy king, and they find God's word in the temple somewhere and they bring it out and they're like, what is this? Can you imagine? They forgot. And, and, and in the Old Testament, it's not like they're like, oh yeah, 
What happened? It's like they willfully forgot. It's like they, they turned aside to other gods and in, in the process forgot Yahweh as the jealous God. So, so we need to be careful not to forget. Another picture of not forgetting is that this jealous God is consuming fire. And um, that's used in, the, in Deuteronomy. We just read it. It's used in Hebrews. It's used a few other times in the prophets to, to speak of God's flaming fire against the enemies of his people. And also, it's a protective fire around his people. So we need to be careful not to forget. Psalm 106 is something you should read this afternoon when you go home, before you take your nap, during a commercial, or just turn the TV off. That's even better. Psalm 106. And look at the story of Israel played out, how they forgot their God and how he is still faithful, jealously faithful to them. Well, implication number two, um, align your passions with God's passions. Align your passions with God's passions. So when your car gets out of alignment, you let go of the wheel and you're veering, you're getting off track, align your passions with God's passions. Um, this is a good thing to do, to take inventory. What does my life consist of? What do I spend my time doing? What do I get most excited about? Um, we, we said that in our song today. Holiness is what I long for. Long for it. So this might be a little silly, but think of the things you long for. And I, I, they don't have to be serious. I long for an Oakland Raiders Super Bowl. I do. I do. That's right, Steve. There you go. <laughs> I haven't won since a few months before I was born. I long for that. Every time I blow out the candles on my birthday cake. <laughs> That's silly. That's silly. But think about the things that we long for. What do we do about the things that we long for? If we truly long for them, we do something about it. We maneuver our lives to make that thing important. I long to get married. Then be marriageable. Right? Um, I long for this. Do something to put yourself in the place of receiving or attaining that. If we long for holiness, if we long for this God, then we need to align our passions with God's passions. If he's zealous for his name, then we ought to be zealous for his name. Um, in Psalm 119, 139, the psalmist is zealously angry that other people are not in alignment with God's word. It makes him angry in a good, righteous, jealous sense that God's not receiving his due. So we should be zealously angry about the things that God is zealously angry about. Do you think God is angry about babies being crushed in the womb? He's just sitting in heaven twiddling his thumbs. I don't know what to do about this. No, we, we ought to be zealous about the things that God is zealous about. Phineas in Numbers 25. Um, the, this is further on in the wilderness story. And the children of Israel are committing adultery. The men are grabbing prostitutes and women from the surrounding nations. And um, Phineas sees one man in the midst of a plague going on. One man walking back to his tent with a foreign woman. Phineas grabs a spear and runs into the tent to this couple in the midst of consummating this and thrusts the spear through both of them. You know what happened? The plague stopped. And God shows up and says, Phineas is zealous for me. He rewards Phineas for it. But the zealousness of, I got to do something about this. Something's happening. I need to align myself with God. Psalm 69.9 mentions... Um, being zealous for God. And it happens to be a passage, passage that the uh, Apostle John describes Jesus as he borrows that phrase for Jesus when Jesus makes a whip. And he walks into the temple precincts and he starts overthrowing tables and all the conservatives go, Stop that! What are you doing? Don't do that! Don't mess with the status quo! Jesus is overturning tables. There's animals running around everywhere. And there's, and there's this chaos. Stop that, Jesus. Oh, don't make a ruckus. No, Jesus is zealous. Stop this in my Father's house. Stop it. This is not what this place was designed for. 
we ought to be zealous for the things that God is zealous about. Lastly, the last story is in Leviticus 20, and we've got to finish. So Leviticus chapter 20, verse 8. Um, how many of you have read through the book of Leviticus in the in 2015 calendar year? Beautiful. That's good. That's good. How many of you avoid Leviticus whenever possible? Come on. Yeah, there you go. All right. Yeah. Why? Because I don't get it. It's boring. It's weird. I don't want to read about um, weird, gross things that have to be dealt with and purification rituals and stuff. I want to hear about that. I want to avoid it. I don't know what this is going on. I like pork. Like, I don't, what, let's not read this. But in the midst of Leviticus, Leviticus is a, is, a, is, a, is a book that's all about holiness. In fact, one commentary that I was looking at, um, the title of the commentary in Leviticus is Holy to the Lord. It's holiness throughout. So quickly, at, at the story, it's still at the base of Mount Sinai. Um, the tabernacle has been completed. God's presence has come down into the most holy place. They're safe. There's a covenant. They've, the children of Israel have seen God's power, his anger, his forgiveness, his mercy. And now they've got to, how do we live? Like, we used to be slaves. We, when you're slaves, you don't like make all the decisions, right? Go work. Okay. <laughs> um, you just do what you're told. Now they're a nation of free men and women living in the wilderness, and they've got to figure out how they're to organize, how they're to live, how their religion is supposed to be practiced, um, and um, how they're to get ready to enter the promised land and live there as a people. How are they supposed to do it in light of this holy God that they live with? And, and he lives amongst them. Well, in this, in this section, um, Moses actually speaks to worship and idolatry again. Don't, don't go like Molech, Okay, the, the, um, the people to the east of Israel worshipped the god Molech and what they did is they sacrificed their children to him. So um, whether or not that looks like just throwing a child into a burning furnace or slitting the child's throat and then whatever the case, this is horrific. This is, this is um, violating the image of God that these people are made in. Um, it is destructive. It is against God's command to his people to be fruitful and multiply. Killing children is not the way to do that. And so in this, the, um, the way, the way, what actually happens is if, if Israel's going to do that, they're going to profane, verse 3, profane my holy name. Make it dirty. Make it common. Make it just like all the other gods. He was going to set his face against that man. He'll cut him off, and that man is to be stoned with stones. Verse 6, if a person turns the mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. What should we do? Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am Yahweh your God, your Elohim. Keep my statutes and do them. I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. Now, uh, most of the versions don't even consider this a name. It's considered an action. Um, but the way that the Hebrew is constructed is just like all these other names of God that we've been studying. This, this name okay, is Yahweh Mechadesh. Okay? Um, it's the, the, the Lord Yahweh who sanctifies you, who sets you apart, who, who makes you um, holy, who dedicates you, who consecrates you. Okay, sanctification and holiness, they come from the same root in both Hebrew and in Greek. So um, in this understanding of holiness, of sanctification, um, Yahweh reveals to his people, I'm the one who's setting you apart. I'm making you holy. I'm making you different, separate, other, special from the people around you. So because of this, Keep my statutes and do them. Now watch this. Because I'm sanctifying you, sanctify yourself. Okay, that word consecrate in verse 7 is the same word as sanctify. Okay, same word. It might have been helpful for the translators to make it the same. But basically, what Yahweh says is, hey, sanctify yourselves. I'm the one who sanctifies you. What? (laughs) This is just like the New Testament, folks. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Wait. Salvation's by grace through faith, not works, right? Well, go look, at, go look at Paul. He uses the words like labor, struggle, over and over again. Um, he uses this, this language that says basically this. God sets us apart 
So we need to set ourselves apart. God makes us, this is how some of you have learned this, God makes us positionally holy. Okay, the, so before, when, when God looks at us, because of the blood of Jesus, we are holy, but we're not holy, right? Practically. So we practically are cleansing ourselves by the practices um, that have how we live. And so we don't just say, well, God makes me holy, so I'll, because God makes me holy, I can go do whatever I want. That does, doesn't make any kind of sense. That doesn't make any Old Testament sense. doesn't make any New Testament sense. Um, it's not at all the case. So uh, just a few, a few things in closing here is Ephesians 1 talks about this thing that we like to avoid in polite company, predestination. <gasps> okay? Um, what, what's the purpose? Look at this. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. That's not the end of the sentence. That we should be holy. Why did God choose you? So you could have a theological debate about how that works? That's not bad, but why did he do it? So you'd be holy and blameless. That's why he chose you. He chose you so you'd live a holy life. He says this in 1 Peter 1. Peter just straight up, straight up rips off Leviticus, which is okay to do because the Holy Spirit's inspiring him to do it, but he just takes an Old Testament concept and brings it into the New Testament. Okay, for, uh, that's the wrong verse. I'm reading the wrong verse. Here it is. Uh, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's, that's straight out of um, Leviticus. Be holy, because God's holy. Okay? God sanctifies you. Sanctify yourself. Okay? Why? Because it's God that's at work in you, to will and to do for His good pleasure. So why do we work? We work because God works. We, we do what our God made us to do. God works, right? He creates. He stops. He goes, it's good. And then what does he tell the man to do? Work. Before the fall. Before sin. Work is a good thing because work is a God thing. So we, we work and we labor to be holy because God makes us holy. You see that? That's something we have to hold in tension. We'll be really careful that, 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 that what happens first is that God makes us holy. And so because God makes us holy, we labor to be holy. Because how many of you would testify that holiness doesn't come by just sitting around? Right? I don't just sit in my room and go, make me holy, Lord. It's not happening. What's going on? <laughs> Get out of your seat. Obey. That's how you become holy. You obey the words that God has given to us. So, quickly, um, implications. Recognize and remember the reality of your sanctification. Recognize and remember the reality of your sanctification. Colossians 1, 9 through 14 uses this picture of transferring, that when we're saved, God transfers us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son. Okay, we get, we get taken out of this category and put into this category. So remember that God do that, did that. Okay, and then remember the reality is that you have been sanctified, you are being sanctified, and someday in the future you will finally be sanctified. So Hebrews 10, 10 says... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Four verses later, um, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So this is a past, um, a past event that has ongoing consequences, and in some, sometime in the future, it will be completed. We look forward to that day when our sanctification is complete. No more work on sanctification. We will be holy because we will be in the presence of the Holy One. Implication number two, work out. Get a gym pass to your Bible. God's work becomes our work. God's work becomes our work. So work out. We already talked about this. Um, but practically on the ground, um, what, what God told the children of Israel is when you get to the land, don't be like the people there. When you get there, don't be like them. So, hey, let's, when you get into that college, when you get that job, when you get the promotion, when you join a new team, a new club, a new fitness center, a new class, when you just get up and go to class, when you get up and go to work, don't be like them. 
You are Yahweh's child. He set you apart. So set yourself apart. Live a holy life because a holy God has saved you for a holy purpose. That you might be blameless before him. That's what a watching world needs to see to know there's any kind of difference between people that say they're Christians and people that say they're not. Do we live holy, set-apart lives? Will we say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts and live righteously and godly in this present age? That will send ripples through our culture. What are these Christians doing? Look at these Christians going back to their churches after they had arms blown off, machetes drawn across their neck. What in the world are they doing? They're working towards holiness and following their God. And that is an incredible testimony to the power of God. So, let's look to Yahweh, our banner. Let's remember and recognize God's jealousy for us and for his glory. And let's remember that it is Yahweh, it is God who sanctifies us. Lord, thank you for these truths. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that we can, um, we can become holy because you make us holy. Help us to be jealous for the things you are jealous for and help us as we fight um, Satan and our flesh and the world this week to look up to that banner, to know that you will fight for us and that you have the power to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.